Labor Day, y'all. Everybody traveling. Anybody going to watch things blow up tonight on the river? Enjoy. It'll be great. You know, since we live in the city for a while now, it's just not as impressive as it once was. So, like, we were like, you want to go firework? Uh, nah. It's like, why do I want to fight these crowds? I have no idea. Yeah, and you can see it from our third floor fire escape. So we might not be back in time, but if you want to climb on top of our third floor fire escape, the squirrels are doing it all over the place, so it's great. But that's another issue altogether. That's where I put. Um, I don't comment on the social medias as much anymore because uh, just even about opinion things, it's just not worth it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not worth entering to a fight with people that, you know, there's just no way to conduct a good argument. So I've actually kept incredibly silent on the social medias. And let's see if I can get it going. We're getting everything here. There it is. It's a little slow. I'm going to move some stands here. About Colin Kaepernick. I don't know if you're familiar with our friend Colin. He was the, um, he is the, dropped a picture there. He's a quarterback, San Francisco 49ers and Um, Because of some of the things that have been happening uh, in the world, especially within issues of race, Colin decided that uh, he was going to protest by not standing during the national anthem. It's made quite the hubbub because that's what we do in America is we make the hubbub out of things that really if we paid them no attention, then it would work out better for all of us. The thing that, that just cracks me up about all of this, and this is the thing you just can't express, is the passion with which people are approaching it over, you know, this is the preface to like a, uh, a football game. And I don't know if you've you know, been to a football game recently, if you haven't, you know, especially an NFL game, because it's so intense. And one of the reasons that people are angry at Kaepernick is because they're like, well, it's bringing dishonor to our, the people who served and fought this. And yet it's the game in which we talk about football as a war metaphor. We're like, we're going to battle. We're going to kill somebody. And it's just like this over testosterone approach to thing. It just cracks me up. And I, again, this is why I don't post it on the Facebooks, because if so, then, you know, I would be claimed for I don't know, wearing like a communist shirt or something ridiculous like that. So the point is, like our drummer did during worship. So that actually, your shirt, coupled with the beginning of this sermon, is just like so anti-American on this holiday. No, this is what, but this is the thing I believe to be the true issue, is that we Americans have a really difficult time grappling with reverence. And I don't know how you feel about it. You're like, no, I'm a very reverent person. But I would even say nationalistically, as we try to play this out, it's difficult for us to be truly reverent. I mean, just look at what we do with our holidays, right? So as much as we want to lambast a guy because he's now taking a knee instead of sitting for not standing during the anthem, we, we say, well, it's because that's who we are as a country. It's, it's what we're about. But friends, we take every holiday that is supposed to be reverent and honor something, and then we co-opt it to something else. Memorial Day, which is supposed to be a holiday to honor those who have passed away, is usually the ceremonial beginning of summer and a great time to buy a new automobile. On July the 4th, as we remember the people who gave their lives for our independence, we blow stuff up and burn meat on a grill, right? Like we, we, we say that we really believe in this, but we constantly are reinterpreting it to how we feel about it. I, I really, for this reason, 
really appreciate Judaism, which has its roots, obviously, within the Old Testament that we read from the Bible. I I appreciate it because when you look at their holidays, the majority of their holidays are indeed holy days. And very often they recollect a horrible incident within their history where they usually celebrate it by fasting or some other means. So today, as we're, um, we're, we're rounding out our um, study of Second Kings, and it's funny, we've, again, moved some things around, and um, I'm trying to get my remote to work, which it was working seamlessly before. Yeah, but it's a little slow right now. So, or was that you? I'm just going to sit here and be like, boom, Dylan, boom. The holiday known as Tisha B'Av, and, you know, for you're like, oh, that's a Hebrew word. I wonder what that really means. It really just means the ninth of Av, which Av was a month. And what we are doing as we ran out, try it. Oh, hold on. Did I do that or did you do that? Okay, so give me a second. All right. As we are rounding up what we've done this summer, our flow of the book of First and Second Kings, as we've been studying this, it ends in this horrible occasion that we will hear about today. Tishbaab is one of the saddest days, one of the saddest holy days on the Jewish calendar. And when it is celebrated, it is celebrated with great fasting. But what I wanted to do, if I can get the slide to come back again. I'm having, just give a second. We'll pause for reverence. Wow. Go back a slide for me, will you, Dylan? We'll figure this out. It's funny. Everything was working perfectly. Oh, did it do it by itself? There's just a lag. It's great. So I'll hit it just going. This is great. Hey, technical difficulties. It's awesome. Understanding then how this, the end of Second Kings, which by the way is toward the end of the Old Testament narrative, how it fits in with the broader narrative of the people of God. If you remember, the people of God became a nation under this guy named Abraham. He was somebody that God called a pagan to cross from, by the way, from Babylon to a promised land to start a nation that God would have. But inevitably, it ended up with the people of God in slavery in the land of Egypt. And that is the darkest moment in the history of God's people. And it's something that we actually see, getting back to a civil rights perspective, something that uh, African-Americans truly embraced was this narrative of the exodus because it was the darkest point in the jewish history and they believed that their slavery was incredibly dark but they don't stay in slavery they are delivered hence the exodus right they leave god has delivered them but even in the best of times they were like we're not sure how this relationship with god's going to end up so they're just like god we're in great you know we're ingrates We don't care what you did for us. And that leads to their wandering in the wilderness where God has to slice off all the bad apples so that they can finally conquest and enter into the promised land that he gave them. And what we read in 1 Kings, the beginning of this great monarchy was the absolute best of times as well for the people of God. For them, they were in a nation. They had a king, a capital, an empire, a temple. It was all working well for them. But what we've done over the summer is see how that quickly goes to pot, correct? And we've seen it denigrate to the point where we are at the Tishbaav, which is the exile of the people of God, them losing their promised land. So what we're going to do today is read through 2 Kings chapter 25. And I'm going to make it because I have faith. Let me turn this off. Turn it on again. It should vibrate. It vibrated. That was effective. 
And there, maybe that was a reset. Maybe it just needed a reset. Or maybe not. Yeah, there we are. Okay. My daughter is going to read. This is the first time you're reading out loud, isn't it, for us at church? Second time? Okay. But what I did this time, kid, is I gave you a lot of really difficult words. So there's some names here of some weird people. Do you see Kalen in that first sentence? There's a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Right? See that in verse 8? His name's Nebuchadnezzar. He has a general that worked for him named Nebuchadnezzar, which is easy for me to say. Actually, it's not even easy for me to say. So Nebuchadnezzar is that dude's name. Can you read out loud for us, Caitlin, verses 8 through 12? 2 Kings 25 in the Blue Bible. What page is that? 281 in the Blue Bible. Let's see how this works. Go, kid. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of... Okay, I... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, I can't say that, Um, commander of the imperial guard, uh, an an official of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole um, Babylonian army, under the commander of the Imperial Guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Um, Keep going. Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the commander of the guard carried into exile... The people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the left, to um, along with the rest of, wait, over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people and of the land to work the vineyards and fields. Good job. Okay, so we skipped over a lot in First and Second Kings because even though I am a geek, I find it alluring. I know many of you would not. The minutia of all these kings that you never hear about. But one of the interesting things, if you go back throughout the books of First and Second Kings, is that time is recorded according to the time and the reign of the monarch. Okay? So again, we'll see if I can get this going. And it might like me and it might not... I'm going to try one more time there. There we go. In 1 Kings 16, these are just examples. There's many, many more than this. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 8, it says, In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, great name there. We didn't even talk about Asa, but it's just fun to say. In 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 1, In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, 2 Kings 14. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah. Okay, so all throughout First and Second Kings... Time is monitored according to the kings of Israel and Judah. If you notice the beginning of verse 8 right here, there's a shift in that. And now it's in the time of the seventh day, the fifth month, and the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And what we're going to see here on the way out of 2 Kings is very much like the entirety of the book of Esther in the Old Testament. God's presence is gone from his people. And that's even expressed in time because now we see that time has shifted and now this once powerful kingdom has been completely hampered. 
So the Tish B'Av, this moment in Israel's history, which is... And Dylan, if you're just going to sit there, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, if you're going to sit there, will you just help me out? We'll figure this out. Sorry for the technical difficulties. This is the most monumental uh, point in the history of Israel. Because God had formulated them as a nation and their capital had fallen. And this took some time as Nebuchadnezzar and specifically his general Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They built siege works around it and there was no way in or out. If you read some of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they talk about this incident. And the big thing is, is that it really, and this is within ancient conquest of land, they starved out the city of Jerusalem. And the famine was so great that people resorted to cannibalism. God's people resorted to cannibalism just to stay alive. And finally, they broke down the walls and when they they came in, and this artist's rendition is supposed to be of the great uh, altar the, uh, in front of the temple is that, you know, just everything was ransacked and desecrated. Everything that was worth the value ended up going back to Babylon. In the assault of the city, we read here that the city was burned. And by the way, burning in an ancient time is almost like, you know, the opposite of like baptism, right? Whereas burning is supposed to be, you know, our washing and baptism are supposed to be cleansing. The burning of it is supposed to be an absolute defilement. They broke down the walls. And this is key because in breaking down the walls, they've then determined the future of the city. When the city had no walls, then it was completely exposed. And when it was exposed to outside people, then the purpose of the city was then gone. So basically, they said, this shall never be a city. And then there's this thing called exile. And we need to understand how exile worked in the ancient land. But we read about it in the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, what we see is that the best and the brightest of the young people were brought back to the city. And they were indoctrinated into Babylonian culture. And this happened all over the place because it was the way to be able to spread your culture even when your generation was gone. And what's interesting about all this is that we see that there were some people who were hanging out and um, I'm going to give it a try here. Yeah. Did I do that? Sweet. Power. In Jeremiah chapter 38, we read that the prophet said at this point, okay, because your visceral reaction is these people are coming into our country. It's the classic Red Dawn 1980s scenario. Where you feel like, you know, it is our duty, our call to fight back. And Jeremiah, who is speaking as the voice of God, said, listen, you guys just need to roll over, surrender, and God will take care of you. He'll spare your life. Everything will be good. And what they did in the first onslaught was the exact opposite of that. They put up their defenses and they said, we will weather it. But what they didn't do is actually recollect that God had sent prophets to say, look, you're being punished. Accept your punishment and it will turn out better for you. And in their insolence, this happened. Death, destruction, just everything that... They, they, they could never imagine. The final thing with Aaron in the verses is interesting. Is that even though they dragged away some of the people, they did leave a few people. They left the poorest people of the land. And really what we hear, read here is that they were left to tend the fields. They were rural farmers. And there's this interesting aspect. Is that the people who then get the land ultimately, the ones who are able to stay, are the meek. Are the poor. Are the least among us. Jesus had something to say about that, right? That the meek will inherit the earth. 
And these were the people who were able to last. And here later in verse 21, it's just a simple, simple statement that describes everything that happened, which is basically that Judah went into a captivity away from her land. This is the end of a kingdom. It's over. Kalen, do us a favor. We're going to read further down in the text, a few less verses this time, verses 24 to 26 of 2 Kings 25. Wait, 24? Yes. Um, Gedaliah. Again, um, Gedaliah took an oath to reassure them and their men. Do not be afraid of the Babylonian officials, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. In, seven, in the seventh month, however... Ishmael, son of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get it. It's just a lot of names. Go ahead. Who was of royal blood? Um, who was of royal blood came with ten men and assassinated... Gedaliah. And also the men of Judah and the Babylonians were with him at Mitzvah. Good. At this, all the people from... The least to greatest, together with the army officers, fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. The good I was giving you is the pronunciation of mitzvah, which is actually the good Hebrew pronunciation, not that Gedaliah and people were assassinated. Like, I wasn't taking joy in the assassination of these people who died a long time ago. I just want you all to know. Okay. So here's the filling in the gap, is that when a nation then conquered and had to leave, they needed to make sure that somebody was on the ground to be the representative. They usually chose somebody of the native people because it was a good go-between, and Gedaliah was this person. Last week, Kelly talked about King Josiah, and we know that the family of Gedaliah was involved in helping Josiah specifically with finding the Torah— the law, so that the people would come back to God. So Gedaliah has good, godly family background, right? And basically, he is saying the same thing that Jeremiah the prophet we just read, right? That Jeremiah was saying, listen, let's just everybody be cool. It's going to be bad, but it will be better. So let's just, you know, submit to the Babylonians and work things out. By the way, we know that it eventually gets better. We who know the end of the story, because the Babylonian Empire only reigns for a very short, like 70 years. So it was actually solid advice, if you knew where the advice was leading. But here's the issue with Gedaliah, is that as he reigned, there were still those people who were saying, no, we need to fight back. They saw Gedaliah as a traitor, and they went and they assassinated him and those who stood with him. So the governor is killed by his fellow people because they said, nope, this is how things are going to go. By the way, I found this irony here that, they were, um, that he was killed at Mizpah, which is, if, if, you know, if you're immersed in any weird Christian culture, there were these things that used to be called Mizpah coins that it was like the cool like pendant thing to do. It's like it was one pendant, it was split in half, and one person would keep the other one. And Does anybody know this, by the way, before I go into this? I need somebody who knows this. 
Yeah, you could go to a Christian bookstore and find it because the pieces fit together. It was like the broken locket, but for Jesus people. And it all goes back to an obscure story in the book of Genesis where Jacob was fleeing and his father-in-law, they were ready to throw down. And it's just like, they ended up in Mizpah and they're like, hey, let's call a peaceful covenant and it'll all be good. And everybody's like, cool. And they're like, and they built a watchtower, which is the Hebrew word for Mizpah. It's a watchtower. But then... Since that point, everybody's like, oh, there's a, you know, like, it brings us back together because we're at peace. And when we're away, I'll pray for you. Like, you can read it. It's in Genesis. It's interesting stuff. But I just love the idea that, oh, and then Gedaliah was killed at Mizpah. It's like, the peace did not work out so well for Gedaliah. So he's like, I had the other half of the coin and you killed me. It would have been funnier if we were been, like, if we were all in this. Like, someday you'll find out about it and you'll be like, that sermon was hilarious. Okay, this is the thing. This event happens. The governor is dead. And how do the people react? They are frightened. They are frightened to the extent that they're like, look, they're killing the governor. Like these Babylonians are going to come in heart. Let's just get out of here. Right? We're all leaving Dodge. And where do they go? They go to Egypt. And again, this signifies something much, much greater than anything we can see. So maybe, yes, just a little bit of a delay. Let's go back to that flow of the Old Testament that we talked about, right? When we're looking at the highs and lows of the people of God. The highest was where they had just come from. The beginning of 1 Kings under Solomon. The height of their kingdom before all the peoples of the world. They had immense power and influence. And here as things are getting to the end and the people are being exiled. Those who are left say this. It would be better for us to be in Egypt under the submission of a Pharaoh than for us to stay where we are. That what that is doing is going back to where they came from, right? Symbolically, it's them saying, you know what things are about? Let's just go back into slavery. Like that wasn't that bad, was it? And that signifies then the complete circle and shift of what happened to God's people. The hope of the Exodus was God will deliver us and he's going to take us someplace better. And even when things got bad, right? Things got bad. What the Lord said is just, listen, you're being punished. Just go with this, accept it submissively, and you'll be okay in the long run. Instead, they're like, nope, let's just go back to Egypt. Let's just go back there. Let's see how it works out. And it doesn't work out well for the people of God in multiple layers. But basically what it says is that everything that has happened has been undone. Because the people didn't trust God. There was just one rule. It's like there's just one rule, everybody. Just trust God. It's going to work out. Just do what he asks you to do. Be submissive. And when they couldn't do that, they said, you know what? Slavery is a better alternative. All right, Kalen, let's finish out the book of 2 Kings in our study for the summer with these verses. Verse 27 to 30. I'm going to give you right now Jehoiachin. Okay, Jehoiachin. There's no like good translation. It's not like he had a dimple on his chin or anything. Maybe that's what I'll start saying. Is that Jehoiah is Hebrew for dimple. And uh, <laughs> Awel Marduk, which is also translated other places. Does anybody have the other evil Marduk? Anyone? Okay, okay. You have evil Marduk, which is great. Like, you know, it's Dr. Evil Marduk. Uh, but, okay, but beyond those names, just work your way through it. Take us home, kid. Oh, you got it. Verses 27 to 30. 
In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year evil met... met <laughs> Marduk. Marduk became king of Babylon. He released um, Jehoiachin from prison of the 27th um, day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. So what's really interesting here is that despite all this stuff that's happening, Judah still has a king. But what happened very often within times of conquest, it, it depends how the battle would go. If the person uh, was, you know, if they were more submissive, the king would, li- you know, the conquering king would let the other king live. And if not, then they would kill him and kill his family in front of him. It was just really a horrible deal. Um, Jehoiachin is fortunate enough to live and he's drugged back to Babylon and he's imprisoned apparently with all these other kings. But, and I love this, is that evil Marduk, right, actually is not quite that evil. Because he pulls Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, out of prison and says, you know what, I'm going to give you like house arrest status, right? You're going to wear an ankle bracelet, but it'll be a stylish one. We'll put bling on it. It will be okay. There's four things that evil Mark Duke does for Jehoiachin, king of Judah. First, he speaks kindly to him. And you might be like, okay, well, that, that was nice because it's like, you know, all my people got killed. Probably some of his family members are dead, but he he spoke well to him. But this is more a a bigger picture than we'll see here. So don't get hung up quite yet on that. One interesting thing here too, the second thing, is he gave him a role of prominence. So if you were an imprisoned king, there was not much prominence. But apparently, he gave him a status that was higher than those other kings. He allowed him to change from his prison clothes. Which is interesting because we see this motif that works in and out of scripture too. Jesus talks about this, right? That he comes to free the slaves and set the captives free. The prisoners are free. And we see that transformation here. And the final thing, and this is the most interesting thing I think of the whole end of the book, is he gives him a seat at his table and he allows him to eat with him. And the book ends, right? So the book ends with the king at a buffet, like, I love this chicken, right? Like, that's the end of the book. Really, it's anticlimactic, right? Like, the way the book should end somewhere is either it's just like, but God was going to take care of him, and it was all going to be good, right? Or it was just like, and they were so, so bad, and, you know, just, like, there needed to be a better ending. But the end of Second Kings is just this king chowing down at another king's table, while half of his people are in exile there in Babylon and the other half are poor farmers back in the field. Weird ending to the story, right? But recognize this, which I really think is the point of where we need to look for all of this, is that the idea that the king was actually eating at the table was the ending 
that the ancient writer wanted us to grasp that was profound. It's more profound than we see today because we, we don't think that much. But by having a seat at the banquet table, what that did was change the ending of the narrative. You're like, it, it doesn't mean anything. But if you understand how the history of this all laid out, it means something significant. Because what that is, in grammatical terms, would be your ellipses. The dot, 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 right? The wondering of what is going to happen next. And at the end of this story, the sign that the king was actually in some sort of good graces, and I think it's no mistake that the king at the time was evil Marduk, that if the king of Judah was in some good position there, then it leaves us with a ellipses that could possibly end well. It leaves us in a state of hope. And friends, if there's no greater message that the scriptures have to tell us, that is what we cling to, right? We cling to the hope of glory. We believe this entire story because it allows us to project to something that's far beyond where we are now. That what is not good today has the opportunity to be good at some point in the future. That is the hope to which we cling. And friends, oftentimes in the Bible, it is linked to eating at the table. Having a meal. And it's something that we, I think, grossly underestimate. Do you like to eat? Like, I've never met the person who's like, I just do not like to eat. And by the way, those people who do, we say they have disorders, right? When somebody is, is, has hostility to food, if they have, an, they have an eating disorder, right? But most of and even people who have an eating disorder, usually still enjoy eating. It's just the outcome of that. I was thinking this past week about eating, another thing that was on the internet. So as much as I want to decry us having to wonder about the posture of an NFL quarterback while the national anthem is playing. Every once in a while, football does bring us positive. And this is, again, this is the most sports I've done for a while, right? But this picture right here, did anybody see this picture this week? This guy's name is Travis Rudolph. Travis Rudolph plays football at Florida State University, which by the way, Florida State is known as like a really, really poor football school. Like they do well on the gridiron, but usually they, they also do well in the prison tally as well, okay? So Travis is visiting a middle school in the state of Florida, and here's a picture that somebody took. is Travis having lunch with this boy right here, and this young man happens to be autistic and happens to usually eat many of his lunches all by himself. And Travis goes and sits down and has it. It's funny. So how many of you had seen this picture this week? Like, look, um, uh, number one, that means you all are on Facebook way too much. But number two, did it not, like, you know, I don't even know this kid or that, you know, young kid. But I'm just, like, you get a little verklempt, right? You're just like, mm, it's special, you know. I'm not yet buying my Florida State University jersey, but I'm getting closer, right? Like, and, and, and I'm going to say that the way this dude is, I don't think he was doing it for the photo op. I think he's just like, oh, I'm going to sit down and talk to this kid. He probably had no idea, right? Why is this powerful? I think part of it is that all of us remember maybe middle school at lunchtime and the politics that surround the dining hall and the certain tables and where you could sit. I think 
maybe some of us have even recollected finding ourselves in this point where we were sitting in isolation and having that gesture while we eat means something. When you think about it, eating too, it's just sharing a meal with somebody. It, it is really a, 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 a penetrating opportunity. Like we, it's usually, we find ways to get closer with people that we don't even know. Number one, you're eating in front of somebody and there's always a risk there, right? Because you, you don't know, I don't know how you eat. If you're trough fed, there's always the inevitable if I'm having salad. That's what I find myself because in my job, I have to take people out to lunch a lot. And I'm always like, I get the salad because I'm trying to eat healthy. But there's always the risk that something in that salad is going to end up in my tooth. And that a conversation, and you've had this, and you know, how many conversations over lunch have been ruined because you're like, I just can't. By the way, be the bigger person. Call that stuff out, right? Like, I, I'm sorry, you got something in your tooth. And you may be like, well, that's embarrassing. Trust me, it, it's no more embarrassing than they would when they find it later. And they're like, oh, man. So th- Jesus is calling you to tell the person across the table to get the stuff out of their food. I'm, I mean, out of their teeth. I just need you to know that. It's in the Bible, Hezekiah, somewhere. Okay. We also, though, and this is something that speaks to this, when we we're talking about why we embrace food, we need it for survival, Right? We need sustenance. So it's something that we do daily because without it, we waste away into nothingness, okay? So this is bringing all this together is that eating and food is an integral part to our lives, but then also we see it in scriptures. The sharing of meals is key. And we see that some of Jesus' best things that he does when he's on the earth, he's eating with his disciples. And here at the end of 2 Kings, what we see is that that sharing the meal with the king of Babylon is supposed to be the sign of hope. Because if he is sitting at the table as the, you know, as the ostracized one, that that means he's coming back closer to prominence. And if the king is coming back to that, then eventually the people will come too. Are you seeing this? By the way, what's the culmination of this within the scriptures? It's in the book of Revelation. What do we often describe this time in, in heaven? And when we're heading to heaven, there's this metaphor that works out. It's the wedding feast of the lamb. And the wedding feast was the meal of meals. It was the banquet of banquets. It was the apex of everything. And this wedding feast is one that is being hosted by the absolute best caterer ever. The Lord God, Right? So the culmination of the Bible is the sharing of this meal. So we see what is happening here in 2 Kings. The meal is the sign of hope. It's to give hope to the people that if our king shares this meal with this powerful, powerful king, it has the chance to get better. So I was thinking about all this. It's like, how do you take that and summarize that? I think there's just some, uh, the, the most practical piece of application that is important for maybe all of us in this room to recognize. Recognize the power of sharing a meal with somebody else. Right? Recognize that. And what it means when you do that. And you might be like, it means nothing, but I'm telling you, it's just why this week our heartstrings were pulled by this random act of just kindness. And it was just heightened, I really believe, because it took place at mealtime. 
And think about this, and some of us are better at this, but I think this is why the challenge is that how good are you at sharing meals with other, with others? Because again, when it comes to mealtime for me, I kind of like, you know, this is why we've become a fast food culture that enjoys eating within our car because it's like, I can do this in solidarity and it's this nice me time, right? Because it's something I do. But, but when you have the opportunity, are you sharing meals with others? Why? Because I think in doing so, it gives those other people a chance for connection and hope. And I'll tell you something, friends. If we, the people of God, aren't actively engaged in this and doing well and sharing meals with others, then there are many people living in loneliness, not having the ability to reach out to a God who loves them. And you're like, how did this come from like Taco Tuesday to salvation? I'm just telling you is that people, kid you not, living in the city for a decade, people are much more likely to join you for a meal than you probably ever imagined. But my house isn't big enough. And my fine silver is not at the level of having people over. Friends, there's, nobody gives a rip about that. You know, some of the best places I visit where it's just like, hey, we got plastic silverware and I'm just like, deal. And by the way, I'm a preacher, so one of the things was is that, you know, in the olden days as a minister, you would have to go to people's houses and, you know, they'd be like, come on, we're having the preacher over. And inevitably they fix something that was just, you're just like, good night, Lord. This, this, I, like, I can pray for this, but it's not going to do the job, right? No prayer can save this. And I reluctantly finished that meal. But you know what's funny? I, I, no joke. I could list you five of those right now off the top of my head. And I remember it. But the thing I loved about it is just this love being in the place where these people who are like, I'm going to cook for you. I'm going to do something, right? Let me obliterate the last thing. So if you're like, okay, well, I can't cook. That's fine. There's fake takeout, you know, takeout places. Go ahead and fake it. Or, or just say, I was too busy or something. I don't know. And if it's cost prohibitive, then just even if you're like, hey, you want to come over for Easy Mac? Just lay it out similar, just as simple as possible. The reason I'm saying this is this, is that as we practice hospitality, it is an opportunity for us to reflect this biblical ideal, which is the love of God joining around the banquet table. The challenge is this, I think, really simply, is that in the next month or so, you need to take somebody out. And preferably, you know, I'll, I'll take my wife out and, you know, that'll count as a date. So it's like the accomplishment of two tasks, right? Doesn't work like that. It is. Just like I have to take you out. The preacher said so. Hey, tonight, hun, you can supersize it. It'll be no problem. No, I think you need to open up your house to somebody Maybe it's somebody that is of the faith. If you're doing the cop-out, you're like, I'll have some Christian people over and then it won't be awkward. That's great. You know what I love more than anything else? Is having people out, you know, over our house who are just far, far from God, right? And you're like, boy, that is going to get awkward eventually when they see my bookshelf filled with Bibles and all this stuff. It might, but you know what? They will come to anyways. And that's how we get to know people, embrace that. It's so weird. I never thought I'd end this whole study of First and Second Kings like... Eat a meal with somebody. Have that. But I think that even resonates from what happens here at the end of this book. That meal is an opportunity of hope. And perhaps you sharing a meal with somebody is the most hope that that person will have. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do in the small insignificant that it's going to have an eternal effect. You're going to eat anyways. Why don't you share that with people? Share your life with people. Because that's 
hope-driven. As we get to this point of the end of our worship, it's just, you know, again, the illustration works perfectly, right? Because what we do every week when we gather as a church speaks into the end of this. Is It's the meal that gives hope, right? And that is what communion is every week. And even though this isn't a significant meal, you will not get your fill today by having communion. It is reminiscent of something that Jesus and his disciples did a few thousand years ago that is the meal that keeps on giving, right? It's this opportunity where the people of God come together and we break bread and we celebrate and we are the people of hope in the midst of it. And what the Apostle Paul wrote about this is that what does this meal do? It projects hope far more than we could ever imagine. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do you do? You proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes. Friends, we, the shackled, imprisoned, get the chance to put on new clothes and to eat at the banquet table of the king. That's great privilege. And we remember that now as we remember what happened in 2 Kings and we celebrate our seat at the table. We praise God for that. So we commune, we remember the cross, we celebrate the King. I'll pray, we'll pass communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our study of First and Second Kings. I thank you, Father, that we see the uh, totally exposed history of your people. That, Father, within this history, there's very little revision because it does not end up well for your people because they live lives in opposition to you. And where that should impact us, Father, is that we do it as well. As much as we try to live the perfect life, all of us in this room fail at it. We all have fallen short of your glory, but that's why we celebrate now and thank you for Jesus who came to earth, who loved us enough to live life perfectly and died a brutal death all for our sin. And that's why we thank you for this meal and this chance to remember. As we break bread and eat, we remember his body that was broken for us. As we drink the cup, the fruit of the vine, we're reminded of his blood that flowed. It's a sad, sad, sad holiday. So help us to be reverent, Lord. And understand that as much as our lives are about your goodness, that there's the time for us to pause. We pause now to eat and remember and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.